Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. The Delta variant is suspected of pushing up COVID rates in San Diego. We do know that Delta cases are increasing here in San Diego based off cases that are sequenced. Since last week, they've nearly doubled. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Hyman. This is KPBS Midday Edition. New numbers show most unvaccinated San Diegans say they're not getting a COVID shot. They lack confidence in the safety of the vaccine. They're worried about side effects. They're worried that the vaccine's development was too rushed, and they're uncertain what its long-term impacts might be. California throws another twist into the school masking controversy, and a San Diego author at this year's Writers' Festival talks about the challenges of writing about culture. That's ahead on Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org. After many weeks seeing daily COVID-19 cases dip into the double digits, San Diego County health officials announced 355 new cases on Monday. In fact, there have been more than 150 cases reported each day in San Diego since the beginning of July. And the likely culprit is the more contagious Delta variant of the virus. The increased numbers present a test between a new strain of COVID-19 among the unvaccinated and a hoped-for wall of immunity among those vaccinated in San Diego. Joining me is KPBS health reporter Matt Hoffman. And Matt, welcome. Hey, Maureen. Do we know for sure if this increase in COVID cases is due to the Delta variant? We don't know for sure. Now, we do know that Delta cases are increasing here in San Diego based off cases that are sequenced. You know, since last week, they've nearly doubled up from like 54 to like 107. But keep in mind, when we talk about sequence cases, like, you know, if you or I were to test positive for coronavirus tomorrow, our case might not go to a lab to actually find out what strain of COVID that is. They only do a very small percentage. I think statewide this month, it was like 5%. But that does give us a snapshot. And we know that it was around less than 10%. We know in the state, of California and in the U.S. that Delta is the dominant variant. Dr. Wilma Wooten did say yesterday that we will probably be seeing that be the dominant strain here in San Diego County, but it sounds like it's not yet. But keep in mind those sequence cases, there is a lag time, you know, two to four weeks. So the data that we're seeing right now is sort of, you know, a a few weeks old. Now, what other factors could be causing an increase in cases? 
Well, you know, health officials have said since late June, they've seen an overall increase in cases. And, you know, we were averaging for a while about 100 cases a day, 75 cases a day. That has gone up recently to in the 200s. We even had a day where we had 300 cases. Now, some of those may be batches that are dropped, but health officials sort of attribute it to, you know, more people going out and mixing, you know, the the big uh, June 15th reopening, the blueprint was lifted, but the pandemic was not over. So uh, probably a lot more people mixing, but it's sort of hard to say. Have we seen a corresponding increase in hospitalizations and deaths? We have seen an increase in hospitalizations, and county health officials presented that at their meeting yesterday. Basically, from the time period of June 12th to July 11th, they've seen a 46% increase in hospitalizations. Now, we're still talking about you know small numbers. I don't think that there's this worry from health officials that we're necessarily going to overwhelm the hospital system right now, but they haven't seen an increase in intensive care unit admissions. They, they seen about a 10% increase during that same time, but they do think, though, that that's a, a lagging indicator in terms of you know if you're in the hospital right now, just in like an, a normal bed with coronavirus. If that worsens, so to speak, you might have to get put on a ventilator and then eventually go to the intensive care unit. So they expect that to change and they expect ICU admissions to also go up a little bit. Does the Delta variant pose a threat to people who are fully vaccinated? So there is some good news in terms of there's more and more data coming out that shows that people who are fully vaccinated, so you know that's either getting you know one dose of the Johnson and Johnson or, or both doses of the Pfizer and Moderna, that there is really really good protection. Now we do know that there's more and more studies coming out that are showing that one shot just doesn't provide that same level of protection, drops down significantly in terms of percentage points. So uh, officials are, are, are really encouraging people to get their second doses if they haven't. We know that 140,000 San Diegans or so have skipped their second doses. Um, and the message that health officials are sort of putting out there is, hey, you know, you might think you're protected early on in the pandemic. You know, we know that one dose was good against uh, the virus that was out there, but it's mutated a lot. Delta is becoming more dominant. And that same protection is not there with just one dose. Now, this uptick that we're seeing in the number of COVID cases, most likely because of that Delta variant, is being called a test case of how much a mutating virus can infiltrate an area with a largely vaccinated public. Can you explain that a little bit more? Right. So San Diego County health officials, you know, they set a goal of getting 75% of residents ages 12 and over. That's basically everybody who's eligible right now to get 75% of the eligible population vaccinated. Now they have hit that goal. You know, 2.2 million people have gotten at least one dose. Um, you mentioned, you know, uh, there's 1.9 million San Diegans are fully vaccinated, but that still means that there's you know, more than a million San Diegans, whether they just, you know, don't want to get vaccinated or they're not eligible yet in terms of their their minors who haven't gotten their COVID vaccination. And we know that Delta just spreads so fast. It, it really just kind of takes over these communities. So there is a worry there that this Delta variant will spread very, very quickly in terms of those who are unvaccinated. And are we seeing pockets of resistance that health officials are worried about? The question was posed to county health officials during a last minute briefing that they called last week. And they did say that they are seeing the lowest vaccination rates um, out in the East County and then rural parts of North County. I've been speaking with KPBS health reporter Matt Hoffman. Matt, thank you. Thanks, Maureen. More on San Diego County's polling results on vaccine hesitancy is coming up next. San Diego is seeing the largest number of COVID cases since April as the Delta variant becomes the dominant strain. Doctors are now getting a glimpse of what happens when restrictions are eased and people congregate while a pandemic is still ongoing. But with 8 in 10 adults reporting they are vaccinated, why are we still seeing a rise in cases? 
A new survey suggests there are still too many people unlikely to get vaccinated despite being able to do so. David Metz, president of FM3 Research, who conducted the survey, and Dr. Bob Gillespie, a sharp physician and the medical director of the San Diego Black Nurses Association, joins us. Welcome to you both. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. Uh, David, what were your top line findings from the survey? Well, we surveyed uh, several thousand adult residents of San Diego County. And while we found that 80% uh, were vaccinated, said they had an easy time getting vaccinated and a lot of confidence in the health benefits that it would provide, about one in five adults tell us that not only are they not vaccinated yet, but a majority of them say they have no intention of getting vaccinated. And for most of them, what we found was they're relatively unconcerned about the risks of getting COVID. Um, They uh, believe it would be easy to get vaccinated if they chose to do so. They don't see any particular logistical hurdles to get past, but they lack confidence in the safety of the vaccine. They're worried about side effects. They're worried that the vaccine's development was too rushed, and they're uncertain what its long-term impacts might be. And for all those reasons, as well as the fact that they're not worried about getting COVID themselves, uh, right now they just don't feel an urgency to get vaccinated. And Dr. Gillespie, if those who are vaccine hesitant don't get the vaccine, what can that mean for the community as a whole? Well, first of all, Jade, I think we should take a moment to take a step back and pat ourselves on the back. And the point being that if you look at historically what we've done with flu vaccines, it's been in the range of 45, 50 percent even though this year we had 55% because of the concerns that were out there. For us to be at the numbers that we are now, that is very encouraging. That being said, um, we do have more work to do. And there can be, obviously, those who are not being vaccinated. The biggest concern is for them, for those people not getting vaccinated or at the highest risk. There are other issues such as the Delta variant and other variants that can occur if we don't have everyone vaccinated. And then what can be done then to encourage those who are vaccine hesitant to get the vaccine? Well, I think we have to focus on, first of all, the 20 percent of people who are unvaccinated who still feel they're very likely to get vaccinated. And I looked at the survey and that's encouraging. So we still have that group we have to focus on. If you look at the county data and you see those over 65 who've been vaccinated, it's well over 90%. So the highest risk people have been vaccinated. We now have to focus on our young folks. If you look at the highest group that have not been vaccinated are those between the ages of 12 and 39. So we have to focus on that group. We have to talk about a condition called long haulers or long COVID and the impact of that condition for not death, but long-term conditions and issues that can occur if these people aren't vaccinated. Focus on how this can impact their lives. Mm. And David, the survey looked at vaccine hesitancy by a number of demographics, including ethnicity. What did you find there? Well, I think uh, first, I just want to follow up on on something uh, Dr. Gillespie raised, which is an important point, which is those who are currently unvaccinated can really be divided into two groups, those who are vaccine hesitant and those who are vaccine resistant. The first group, the hesitant, uh, largely younger San Diegans, are people who haven't had a chance to get vaccinated yet, may not feel a lot of urgency about it, but they're open to it. And if we tell them it's free, it's administered by healthcare professionals, it's been thoroughly tested, uh, they ought to be uh, persuadable and they ought to be uh, willing to get vaccinated. And the survey data suggests that. 
But there is another group, those who are resistant, who say that they will not get vaccinated. Uh, and they are much more resistant to that kind of, of information. And it's likely going to be harder to get them uh, to be willing to, to take the vaccine. Now, in terms of demographically who they are, the profile right now of those who are most resistant tends to be older, whiter, more affluent, and more highly educated than the rest of the county's population as a whole. And that's a shift from what we saw in some research at the end of last year, where it was some of those younger residents and communities of color that were a little bit more hesitant about the vaccine. Those ethnic differences seem to have uh, diminished overall. And at this point, those who are resistant to the vaccine are more likely to be white than they are members of communities of color. Uh, David, but when you look at it from an ethnicity lens based on the percentage of those who have and haven't gotten the vaccine, white people have the highest rate of getting the vaccine. Can you explain how that works? Uh, sure. So 83% of whites say that they've been vaccinated. 80% of respondents of color have. That's a relatively small difference, and it's around the survey's margin of error. But when we look at those who express the greatest resistance to getting vaccinated, who say they are not at all likely to get vaccinated, they are much more disproportionately uh, white. And I think what some of that has to do with, unfortunately, is partisanship. Um, we have seen that uh, uh, among white Republicans and other survey data, there is more resistance to taking the vaccine, um, whereas whites who identify as Democratic are more likely to get vaccinated and have higher rates of vaccination so far. So I think what we're seeing now is the, the set of white adult residents of the county who are unvaccinated uh, may differ in that way ideologically that may be influencing their willingness to get vaccinated. Dr. Gillespie, when this pandemic first started, the narrative was that people of color were more hesitant to get the vaccine. You've been a part of, of a lot of community-based vaccination efforts. What's your reaction to these findings from the survey? I think the survey is excellent and it provides a lot of information. But remember also, when you have a larger pool of people who have already been vaccinated, that is, you already have a large pool of whites who have been vaccinated, then you are pretty much, and especially in an affluent group that knows how to get to the information, get the vaccine done, you have a much smaller pool of people to pull from, meaning that that's, that group would have gotten vaccinated because they would have had the means to do it. When you look at African-Americans, there had been some access issues, there had been some other issues that have been going on. So we have a larger pool to deal with to still encourage that group to move forward. And I think some of the data may be skewed because of that. Because I still see hesitant people for reasons that we can talk about, including concerns about the long-term effects of the vaccine, concerns about how quickly it was developed. And think, that's still out there. And I talk to people every day about that. But many of those people, once you give them the facts, you go over how the vaccine was developed. You go through the side effect profiles. You look at the issues related to clots or pericarditis that have come up you can explain the importance of use, of getting the vaccine and that the risk of having a problem is much less than the, um, the facts, the large benefit that you get for getting the vaccine. So I think it's a population that still has some that are racially divided and hesitant based on mistrust and other factors. But I would agree it's not nearly as much as we initially thought um, early on. Mm. And David, Dr. Gillespie mentioned the long-term effects of the vaccine being one reason that people say they are vaccine hesitant. What are some of the other reasons that you saw with your survey? 
Well, the primary concerns that people raised were uh, concerns about the long-term effects, concerns about immediate side effects that they might experience. And in particular, uh, some of the respondents seemed to be aware of some of the challenges faced relating to the J&J vaccine. Um, although the problems have arisen in a very small uh, group of, of uh, people in studies, um, they have gotten a fair amount of publicity. And so that's something that the respondents were aware of. Um, but it really was those health concerns uh, that seemed to be the biggest obstacle. It was not a belief that it was hard to get the vaccine, hard to get an appointment, hard to find a place to, to schedule it. It was not some of the more outlandish uh, claims that we've heard about about the sort of the motivations behind vaccination or, or what some of its other effects might be. And so, as, as Dr. Gillespie said, very carefully going through with people the evidence that has been gathered, the incredible effectiveness that the vaccine has had so far um, ought to help to allay some of those fears and concerns and hopefully make people more comfortable with getting vaccinated. Dr. Gillespie, hearing that, uh, what would you like for people to know about those concerned with vaccine side effects? I, I think David alluded to the point. If you look at those who have had side effects that are real concerning side effects, you had a small group of patients, women between ages 18 to 48, that developed this issue of clotting, or you may have all heard about this whole thing with TTP, which is a very serious condition, but it occurred in a very small percentage of people, somewhere in the line of one in a million, and some very small number. The same with pericarditis and inflammation of the heart occurred in a small number of younger male primarily patients of, who all recovered from this that I know of no one that had any long-term effects from that. So educating folks on these are short-term issues and that when you get the vaccine and you have a reaction, that you, that's a normal reaction. That is when you have the muscle aches, et cetera, that's your body getting ready to defend itself if challenged with the actual virus. So we have to get those messages out. And I wanna again point out, it's important to talk about these other conditions such as long COVID, which a long haulers condition, which I have several patients now who are young and can't get back to work. So these are things that young people, we have to point to. We used to could use the argument, you could infect your older grandmother or your mother and father. But now they, the answer to that, when I say that is they're all vaccinated. We don't have to worry about them as much. So I still want to focus on directly how it would impact these young folks. And lastly, it's really important to make sure that 140,000 people who are overdue for their second vaccines, that they get that second shot and point out the importance that it's a two-shot vaccine unless it's J&J. And you have to get that second shot to be fully protected. I've been speaking with David Metz, president of FM3 Research, who conducted the survey, and Dr. Bob Gillespie, a sharp physician and the medical director of the San Diego Black Nurses Association. Thank you both for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. 
We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Hindman. For many in the public, Afghanistan was America's backburner war, far away and often overshadowed by war in Iraq. As U.S. troops continue pulling out the survivors of a fiery helicopter crash 15 years ago that killed 10 soldiers, say time does not heal all wounds. KPBS military reporter Steve Walsh has the story. Justin O'Donohoe was 24 years old when he enlisted in the Army. He had already graduated college. His parents, Pat and Pam, still have his pickup truck out front. They drove it home to San Diego after visiting him at Fort Drum just before he deployed to Afghanistan in 2006. And we took him out to dinner at his favorite Chinese restaurant, which he loved, and that was the last time we saw him live. It's been 15 years since Justin died in a fiery helicopter crash on a mountainside in Kunar province, along with nine other soldiers. Fathers aren't supposed to bury children. There is no closure for that. There is a, a internal kernel of you that is still filled with grief. Justin O'Donohoe was a cavalry scout with the 10th Mountain Division. His platoon was on a mountain at night near the Pakistani border. One of Justin's platoon mates, Nick Pelosi, says the landing zone was only large enough for the giant Chinook's rear wheels to touch down. On the third try, the rear rotor struck a treetop. And it just tumbled and exploded, and um, it was just mass, mass carnage, basically. They had been in the field for weeks, part of Operation Mountain Lion. The goal was to retake territory captured by Al-Qaeda and the Taliban. It was so hot that we couldn't get down in there, so we're yelling, you know, if, if you're hurt and you're still alive, you know, move or make a sound, something, and we're going to come down and get you. In the morning, the survivors came down to recover the bodies. Pelosi was injured after he was knocked out of the helicopter during an earlier attempt to land. I mean, it was about 9-11, and... <laughs> At this point, I, I don't really know. I don't really know what it's about. Pelosi left the Army after that first 18-month deployment. He's now living on a farm in upstate New York, near where he grew up. The damage that comes from this stuff is unbelievable. You know, none of these families are ever going to be the same after this. Justin left one last voicemail before heading into the mountains in Afghanistan just to tell his parents he was okay. They were a military family. Justin's father spent his career in the Navy. His brother Kyle is a Navy pilot. Adonaho's mother Pam says some days are harder than others. I don't, I don't agree with the war because I think a lot of people got killed, a lot of boys got killed for no reason. We didn't win anything for anybody. You know, you, why were we there? I don't know anymore. The O'Donohoe sat around the same dining room table where army officers sat to tell them the findings of the crash nearly 15 years ago. When all is said and done, the helicopter still crashed and our son still died. 
The Army ruled the crash an accident. A heavily redacted copy of the crash report says two sergeants told their leadership that they considered the night landing high risk and didn't understand why it was being attempted. Regardless, the effective end of the war in Afghanistan doesn't offer any solace to the O'Donohos. And you move on with the rest of your, your life and you don't forget, you don't ignore, you don't let it slide by. I have a compartment in me that's Justin. America has never had a conflict that stretched on for so long that the parents of fallen soldiers were still watching the war on TV long after their children had died. As the Afghan war finally comes to an end, Pam and Pat O'Donohoe are moving forward without moving on. Joining me is KPBS military reporter Steve Walsh. And Steve, welcome. Hi, Maureen. Now, the sacrifice of this family in the Afghan war is part of two decades of U.S. casualties in that country. More than 2,300 U.S. military personnel have been killed. And yet, as you say, this has been America's back burner war. Why do you think that is? Well, you can make the case that Afghanistan stopped being at the forefront of public attention right after the uh, invasion of Iraq in 2003. You, know, you look at all the publicity sur surrounding the departure over the last you know, few weeks. You know, I'm watching this a bit more closely, so I can see some of the benchmarks as the U.S. starts to pull out. You know, we have largely left Afghanistan already, but you're not really seeing um, these stories making you know, the top headlines. Uh, you know, some of that is the Biden administration. They're not looking for that mission accomplished moment. They're more interested, it seems, to not telegraph their moves so they can avoid a confrontation with the Taliban on the way out. One of the soldiers you spoke to in your feature says the war used to be about 9-11. Then he didn't know what it was about. And that questioning about the purpose of the war is shared by Justin's parents, wasn't it? Yeah. Justin's mother especially, she really didn't understand why we had been there for so long and had the most difficult time in, in trying to explain that. Um, his father had very similar, had a very similar viewpoint, even though he's, uh, he had a military career himself in the Navy and was a civilian contractor. In fact, he even did a crash investigations as part of his job so he could understand what had happened to his son. But it's, you know, it's especially hard to explain the war after um, the SEAL team killed Osama bin Laden back in 2011. There's just a sense that nothing really changed long term. You know, we honor the sacrifice that uh, these men and women made for our country and for their comrades. But overall, the, the goals seem kind of murky. This week, the top general in Afghanistan stepped down, and that's apparently a signal of the end of the war. Can you tell us about that? Oh, yeah. Monday, General Austin Miller stepped down as the commander of the American-led forces in Afghanistan. They had a change of command ceremony in Kabul, which effectively ended the U.S. war in Afghanistan after 20 years. You know, we have largely left already, except for a small force, which remains mainly to protect the embassy and a residual force that's basically handing off control to, to Turkish forces. But, you know, after 20 years, this is this is not the top story this week, even though, you know, for the most part, the war is over. And, and don't expect any big homecoming parades. This will most likely be a very quiet end to America's longest war. 
And since the war in Afghanistan lasted a generation, I wonder if the end of the war is having as big an impact as you might think it would on Camp Pendleton. You know, so many young Marines were barely born when this war started. I'm always told that, you know, the Marines are um, are the youngest fighting force. So most of the people who fought in Iraq and Afghanistan, um, they're either at the very end of their careers or they've they've left long ago. I've been told by uh, U.S. Marine headquarters that there are no Marines at, uh, who are part of the remaining troops. So that means no one from Camp Pendleton or, or 29 Palms are, are left on the ground. So, you know, I'm going to be sitting down with members of the Dark Horse Battalion, which spent seven months in, in Helmand province in Afghanistan. They will go down as having the highest number of casualties of any American unit during this war. You know, 34 Marines lost limbs. And they're living with the legacy of a co- this conflict, and, and they'll be living with it for the rest of their lives. Their, their injuries, though, did drive a, a revolution in prosthetics. So I, I'm, I'm really actually looking forward to sitting down with them and talking with them and, you know, really getting a sense from them of what, uh, what their understanding is of the war. The U.S., okay, is gone, but our stated enemy, the Taliban, remains. Is the Taliban part of a new Afghan government? Well, you know, we, fi- we forget that talks are still ongoing with the U.S. and the Taliban and the Afghan government. It's been described as slow going, even by optimists. Um, you know, many observers say the Taliban is just waiting for the U.S. departure. They've already taken wide swaths of the country. The Biden administration said that they, uh, they're confident that the Afghan government will hold, it, uh, at least at the population centers around Kabul, but you know, we'll see. When you spoke with Justin's family, the Donahos, did you get the sense that they were glad the Afghan war is finally over? Well, for them and for everyone else who lost a loved one in that war, it does not bring back, back their son or daughter. You know, it doesn't bring back their son or any of the people who died in that crash that day back in 2006. Justin's dad talks about there being no such thing as closure when you lose a son. It was clear that they, uh, they haven't be able, been able to describe the purpose behind this war for a very long time. Um, they seem relieved that it's over, but it, it really, it doesn't really end the pain that they will take with them for the rest of their lives. I've been speaking with KPBS military reporter Steve Walsh. And Steve, thank you. Thanks, Maureen. California has softened its COVID masking guidelines for the upcoming school year. The change comes after the state originally advised that students who refuse to wear masks would be barred from campuses. While face masks will be required indoors, social distancing will no longer be mandated within the state's public schools. The change in guidelines further complicates how parents and schools approach the health and safety of children in classroom settings, especially as cases of the Delta variant continue to rise across San Diego. Joining me now with more is Dr. Robert Schooley, an infectious disease specialist at UC San Diego Health. Dr. Schooley, welcome back to the program. Thanks very much. Good afternoon. So first question here, uh, is there a consensus within the medical community as to how parents should approach the health and safety of their children in the classroom? Well, we know that uh, children can be infected, that they are less likely to become ill than 
uh, adults, but some do become quite ill. And uh, there have been some deaths and some long-term side effects in some children who are unfortunate enough to become infected. We know that many of the same things that have worked in adults to prevent transmission, masking, trying to avoid large numbers of people indoors together, maximizing ventilation, work in children as well. So until vaccinations become widely available for children under the age of 12, we're going to have to rely on some of the behavioral interventions uh, to keep children as safe as possible. Where does the state's revised guidance sit with what the CDC is currently recommending? The state's basically being consistent with the CDC guidelines, which is that uh, people who are unvaccinated should wear masks indoors. The CDC is recommending that K through 12 students uh, also remain masked uh, in the fall term, mainly because most of them will not uh, have been vaccinated uh, by the time fall arrives, since the studies of vaccines in younger children will be ongoing. So the state's uh, recommendations are quite consistent with that. Uh, I hope that as uh, the vaccines are found to be safe and effective in children, that we can extend the same protection to them that we have to the adult population and make uh, schools also a place where the virus isn't welcome. In the meantime, there's been a nationwide spike in the number of reported COVID cases over the last week. Is there any worry that this kind of spike could extend to school campuses once the fall semester starts up? Well, we know that respiratory viruses do increase in their um, incidence. The new cases, um, in other words, uh, increase in fall and early winter as people come indoors. And that certainly happened last year with uh, this particular virus. There's no reason to think that it won't. And we have layered on top of that this new Delta variant, which is circulating, uh, and a substantial sub-segment of the U.S. population that has not yet been vaccinated. So I think we're going to continue to see in the fall kind of a dual epidemic. One epidemic will be of unvaccinated people, and they will end up in the ICUs, uh, and many of them will die. We will also have cases of much less severe disease, more flu-like illness, uh, so-called breakthrough cases, and people who have been vaccinated, but very few of them will end up uh, in the hospital. Uh, And we will have cases of people who have been vaccinated who are infected but don't become symptomatic. Uh, The schools will be part of this. Uh, Children, because they're younger, will be less likely to become severely ill. Uh, But we should be careful about our children. And again, when they're in situations where there are large numbers of others present, masking really makes a lot of sense uh, until they become vaccinated. And that's the reason the K-12 recommendation remains in place. And given that that's the case, you know, given the current surge of Delta variant cases, then should students and teachers alike be wearing masks in the classroom regardless of vaccination status? I think in the fall, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, There will be children over the age of 12 who have been vaccinated. The problem is that when you're in a school, you don't know who's vaccinated and who's not in an elementary and high school. And until vaccination percentages are much higher than they are now, uh, it's just much more reasonable to have everyone be masked uh, until we get to a higher level of vaccination. So what do we know about the transmission of COVID-19 in the classroom? We know it has occurred. We know that when people have looked, though, in, in the last year before vaccines became widely available, most of the transmissions occurred uh, when people became infected in their families or in the community and came to the classroom rather than the classrooms being uh, incubators for infections that then spread into the into the population. There's no reason to believe that the virus can't be transmitted in classrooms. And, and again, that's why masking is recommended and will be particularly important in the fall if the current uh, increase uh, in new cases uh, continues to, um, to accelerate. Here's a question for you. Do you have any sense on if the virus has been able to mutate among those breakthrough cases? 
We don't yet. Um, there are some data emerging that most of the breakthrough cases are variants, but it's also true that most of the cases in the community now have become variants. Uh, so uh, although the data aren't definitive, I think you would see an overrepresentation of variant cases in the breakthroughs. And we'll continue to have that happen. But again, people who have been vaccinated are much more likely to have either an infection that has no symptoms or an infection with mild flu-like symptoms. Now, I think one thing that people should, we've seen a fair number of people who just think they have the sniffles or the flu and continue to go to work and school uh, and then suddenly realize when they get tested that what they really had was COVID. I think people should be aware that those who've been vaccinated in particular can have what people think are the sniffles or the flu that turn out actually to be COVID cases. And so if you have symptoms like that, uh, you should not go to work and you should not go to school and you should be tested for COVID uh, because uh, right now that's more likely uh, than another viral infection. And let me ask you this, is it accurate? Because we hear this so often that the virus is able to mutate because so many people are not vaccinated. Is that an accurate statement? It is. This virus, like other RNA viruses, and those include HIV uh, and hepatitis C, are viruses that are able, and influenza as well. These viruses are able to stick around the human population because they uh, have as one of their toolkits the plan to make mistakes when they copy themselves so that each new generation of virus is slightly different from the one before. So this virus, like all RNA viruses, will gradually change its genetic makeup as it goes through the human population. And the more people who are infected and the fewer people who are vaccinated, which both increases the likelihood of new infections and allows the virus to replicate at higher levels, in other words, more viral progeny, more viral children are produced in an unvaccinated person. The more of that that happens, the more likely the virus is to continue to evolve. I've been speaking with Dr. Robert Schooley, an infectious disease specialist at UC San Diego Health. Dr. Schooley, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. As we've been reporting this week on the program, California is in the midst of another drought emergency. But there are still no mandated statewide water restrictions similar to those deployed during the last multi-year drought. And the public response to that decision varies depending on where you live. KQED reporter Ezra David Romero explains. 85% of California is experiencing extreme drought conditions. The last time statewide drought restrictions went into place was 2015, and it was the third drought year. Californians are using 16% less water, and that's why the state is only asking for a 15% voluntary water reduction, says Carla Nemeth, director of the California Department of Water Resources. By the end of this year, if we're preparing for another extraordinarily dry year, then we could see California move towards mandatory water reduction. Even though reservoir levels and dry conditions are dangerously low in some areas, on par with a three- or four-year drought, Nemeth says regional restrictions allow for a targeted approach to reduce water waste. From a climate perspective, I would take the 15% seriously. Noah Diffenbaugh is a climate scientist at Stanford. We don't have drought relief on the horizon. We can expect these conditions to intensify before there is relief. My fervent hope is that we see some an early onset to the rainy season this year. UCLA climate scientist Daniel Swain says that's hypothetically possible. Maybe the rains will arrive in September or October this year. That would sure be nice. But Swain says that would be contrary to the trend. California is having shorter rainy seasons, more concentrated in the winter. Even with all that California is facing, think heat waves, wildfire risk, and lack of rain. 
UC Davis Water Resources expert Jay Lund says requiring areas that don't need to conserve as much right now, like Los Angeles and San Francisco would, make them less receptive to being told later on when you really need them to conserve a lot of water to do so. But for many people who live in places like the San Joaquin Valley, where wells are going dry, the light water restrictions feels like a gut punch, says Veronica Garibay, co-executive director with the Leadership Council for Justice and Accountability. It's 109 degrees in Fresno today. Imagine having to work outside all day and come home and not being able to shower in your own home. I think it's infuriating and disappointing and sort of feels hopeless. Like, have we not learned our lesson here? Getty Bay's group advocates for communities through the Central Valley and the Coachella Valley, where the drought is making existing inequities worse. Why is the burden on communities and people of color in particular who have the least access to safe water and, and are disproportionately impacted by dry wells and, and access to safe drinking water to begin with, why is it on our backs and on our community's backs to have to always raise the alarm on these issues? With the most vulnerable in mind, Faith Kern says it's time to start thinking of drought as a chronic issue as opposed to an acute idea where we will be saved by rain each year. She's a scientist for the California Institute of Water Resources. I think the set of actions we might take start to look a little bit different, and I don't totally know what those are yet. Maybe those, those voluntary water reductions are permanent. Whether the current reductions become part of our permanent California way of life is still to be determined. But everyone I spoke with recognizes climate change is stressing the way we currently live. They say solutions for future dry times may mean reinventing the way water is managed beyond just what's needed to get the state through this current drought year. I'm Ezra David Romero. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. The San Diego Writers Festival kicks off on Saturday with virtual events bringing together local writers and nationally known and award-winning authors. Discussions range from the practical, how to find a literary agent, to the philosophical, how books can help us through life crises. San Diego author Anisha Bhatia's debut novel, The Rules of Arrangement, was published just yesterday. She'll be participating in the Writers Festival on Saturday as part of a panel on writing about culture and she joins me now. Welcome to you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on, on your show. Anisha, first, congratulations on the book. Thank you. Yeah, this is your first published novel. And since we're talking about the Writers' Festival, I wanted to ask, what was your experience like writing the book and getting it published? 
Um, this is my first piece of long fiction that I've ever written. And um, I did not realize how lucky I was to find an agent and get a publisher. So I am feeling a lot of gratitude these days. Um, I went through the usual channels of editing and re-editing and uh, the absolutely despairing query process and um, found my agent, worked on the book with her a little more, and then we had a publishing deal. So um, the usual channels. And I'm um, grateful that it was published, um, you know, when it was. Mm. And your book is called The Rules of Arrangement. And it tells the story of 26-year-old Zoya Sani, who lives in Mumbai. And she has achieved a lot of success in her academic and professional life. But at that uh, ripe old age, she's still unmarried, uh, which creates a problem for her family to solve. But it's not necessarily a problem for her at all. Why did you want to write about arranged marriages? Um, I come from a deeply traditional um, South Asian um, culture and not getting married or not marrying is just not an option on the table. It isn't something that you speak to your parents about and they'll be like, um, yes, have you thought it through? All right, then we're good to go. This, if you would say something like, I do not want to get married or I just want to have a different life, people would look at you like, oh, I'm, is there something wrong with you? What's, what's going on? So um, that's something that I wanted to explore, um, how you... Um, sort of take both the traditional and the modern and um, create something out of it for yourself. Mm. And, you know, this is a, a novel, but it's also a social commentary on beauty standards, colorism, body image, and expectations for South Asian women. What message are you hoping re readers take away from this book? Um, absolutely. There's, there's like, um, there are two things that uh, were foremost in my mind when I was writing this book. One was um, for women, the women everywhere who've been made to feel less than because of their appearance or weight or skin or anything. I just uh, wanted readers to take away from this book that you are enough. You deserve all the good things. Don't shrink yourself and take all the chances you get. Don't hold yourself back. Um, the second one was um, as a young person, I grew up with a lot of aunties around me and um, I ended up, I remember seeing them as sort of, why are you watching over me so much? But as a young person, it is difficult to see someone older um, as a person rather than just sort of a place head or figurehead in the family. And I just wanted to bring about the thing that all of the people, whatever they do, there's always a reason behind it and they are who they are because of what has happened in their life and that everybody has a story. Mm. And what you're talking about there is the book's message of compassion. Why is this important to the story? Uh, we often, uh, and you're right, you're absolutely right. And um, we often go through life, uh, I don't want to say without compassion, but it is very essential in, in the world just to see other people and to know uh, that everything that is coming from them, good or bad, has a reason behind it. And um, we just need more compassion in our lives and our world these days. And, and the rules of arrangement is met for an American audience. And it's largely about a cultural tradition that isn't so common here. So how did you approach writing about this topic when you knew it might be unfamiliar to many people reading it? So um I chose a specific kind of narrative, the way the main character speaks, 
um, simply to make it more relatable. She She's this modern uh, girl who has a career, who's doing things with her friends, who's going out drinking, who also has a boyfriend with benefits. And um, Anna used sort of an irreverent voice um, to talk about things that are considered um, not irreverent or almost um, sacred or very serious topics to basically show what she feels inside her head, what she cannot say out loud, which is also a universal thing. There are lots of things that we cannot say out loud, but we're thinking them in our heads. So I kind of use that narr- narrative to make it a little more relatable um, to the audience. And you'll be speaking as part of a panel on Saturday on writing about culture. How do you draw from your own personal experience as an immigrant to San Diego when you think about writing about culture? Um, I've been in San Diego for about 20 years now. And um, personally, I feel that anything that I do as a South Asian, as an Indian reflects upon my culture. So, um, you know, that always comes into how I'm writing. And um, I simplified some things in the book, uh, certain concepts of, say, like arranged marriages, which are so new to this audience, and how the family plays a very central role in why arranged marriages are important and why um, they uh, occur in societies like ours. Um, So, um, and I used, you know, a lot of, um, a little bit of explanation in, uh, within the narrative sort of um, explain what is going on and uh, and our society is very uh, what do you what do I say South Asian society is very collective and American society is very um, individualist so um, it was great to sort of bring those together in a balance in that narrative and you know anytime you're on a panel or you're writing about your culture um you are a representation of your culture is that ever a heavy weight to carry yes i'd say sometimes it is um it, it would be a lot more um it it wouldn't be as much if i was living back home but i've been integrated in um you know san diego's life the american way of life for a long time now so it isn't as much of a burden now as it was before and and i've it's been really enjoyable to be able to introduce some of the culture that i love so much to a new audience I've been speaking to San Diego author Anisha Bhatia, whose debut novel, The Rules of Arrangement, is out now. She'll be taking part in a panel discussion on Saturday at 11.15 as part of the San Diego Writers' Festival. And you can find more information about the Writers' Festival and her book on our website. And Anisha, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Thank you so much for having me on your show. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. 